Well, today we're going to be we're going to be taking a break from James. Uh, Justin's been preaching through James, and we're going to move way way back uh, into your Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter thirty-four. Um, so, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or it's printed for you there in your bulletin as well. And while you're getting there, I'll just kind of get us up to speed. If you'll remember, back in August, um, I preached out of Exodus twenty on the tenth of the Ten Commandments on on not coveting. We're going to leap forward a little bit, and we're going to go to Exodus 34. But to get us situated, uh, let me give you a little bit of a summary about what has happened up to this point in the book of Exodus. First, the Israelites have been held uh, in captivity uh, by the Egyptians for for hundreds of years. Uh, And God brings them out of this captivity, brings them out of slavery to go and to worship Him. And in freeing them, He shows Himself to be the one true God who acts in history by parting the Red Sea. That's one thing that he does for them. He also gives them manna from heaven. So literally food falls from heaven for them to eat. Uh, He gives them water out of a rock as well too. And all of this evidence sort of stacks up that God is the one true God. And not only that, in Exodus 19 and in Exodus 20, he calls them to be his covenant people. Uh, And in Exodus 20, he gives them the law. He gives them the the guide by which to show them how to properly worship him. But then we get to Exodus 32. And though the Lord has done all of these things for the Israelites, for these people, when Moses goes up to the mountain to be with the Lord, in Exodus 32, the people fashion a golden calf. And God has to punish them. He has to punish them for this, their disloyalty. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 34. And this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you wrote. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he, being the Lord, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Who would please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word tells us 
who you are, that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this day and that we would feel the reality of those things. We ask this in, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1997, there was this young golfer that came on the scene. Uh, and he was playing at the Masters. And this young golfer was Tiger Woods. And as, as a young buck, he shattered every record that was set at the Masters. And it started this sort of craze in the golf world in, in which Tiger Woods actually just transformed the golf world altogether. People started coming in droves to the events that he was, that he was playing at and, and following him around as if almost to, to worship him. And they were buying uh, everything that he endorsed. And he became sort of like this, this icon, this icon for golf. And almost like an idol to some people. That was until a few years ago when a news story came out that Tiger Woods had been involved in, in a wreck in his own neighborhood. And then a little bit more of the story was uncovered and, and, and we discovered that that wreck uh, was a product of a domestic dispute that he had with his wife. And then a little more news comes out and we discover that that domestic dispute was over his unfaithfulness. To his wife. And just like that, all of these Tiger Woods fanatics were totally let down. The man that they had followed, the man that they had tracked and kept after it, and almost even worshipped, had let them down. But why did he let them down? He let them down because he's not God. He's a man. But as we see in Exodus 34 here, God demands that we worship Him and we worship Him alone and not anything else. Now, we may think ourselves a little bit better than those Tiger Woods fanatics. But the truth is, there's something in each one of our lives that tempts us to push aside our worship for God. But God demands our worship of Him and Him alone. And what we'll look at today gives us the reason that we should desire to worship Him alone. And that's because He loves us. And he loves us in several different ways that our text shows us. He loves us by showing us mercy. He loves us by showing us grace. And he loves us because he promises to do significant things through insignificant people. Well, first, let's take a look at mercy. Let's first, let, let's define what mercy is. In particular, in our context here. Mercy is when God relents to bring his righteous judgment upon his people here for having sinned against him. Look back at verse 1 with me. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Okay, so Moses is having to go and get another set of tablets, which obviously means that there was a first set of tablets. But what happened to this first set of tablets? If you'll remember... Back in Exodus 32 and Exodus 33, as we talked about earlier, the Israelites, they went and they made, they made a golden calf. They, they made an idol to worship. And at first you may think, well, is it really that big, that, that big of a deal? Well, it really is that big of a deal because in the Ten Commandments uh, that God gave the people of Israel in Exodus 20, one of the very first things he says is don't make any idols. Don't make any idols. And what do they do? They go and they make idols. 
I mean, they, they are not that far removed from receiving the Ten Commandments. And Moses, out of anger towards the people, what does he do with those first set of tablets? He breaks them. He throws them down and, and, and he breaks them. And, you know, the truth of the reality is, the Lord has every right to just be finished with these people. Every right. I mean, think about all of the things that he's done for them. He's brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He's, he's literally parted a sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. And then, not only that, when the Egyptians go and try and follow them, he crashes the waters down on top of them. He gives them manna from heaven. He gives them water from a rock. He does all of these things, and yet they still don't get it. They still don't get it. But he still shows them mercy, doesn't he? He shows the Israelites mercy even though they have utterly defiled and broken the covenant. God condescends to give them the law once again. He reconstitutes the original covenant that he made with them in Exodus 19. And more importantly, he makes this self-declaration about who he is in verse 6. About who God is. What is the essence of who he is. And this is what he has to say about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He proclaims himself to be a merciful God. He's shown himself to be a merciful God. And even now, even in this moment, when the Israelites have just utterly defiled everything that he's told them to do, he shows them mercy again. When I was in seventh grade, my life revolved around basketball. I know you wouldn't really think it now. Uh, five foot nothing and everything. But, but every day when I, when I got home from school, the very first thing that I did is drop my book, book bag off, go get a basketball, and shoot. And shoot, and shoot, and shoot, until the sun went down. Until I literally just couldn't see anymore. And... Uh, you know, that's all well and good, that's fine, but it, but it presented a little bit of a problem because all I was doing was playing basketball, and I wasn't exactly doing my homework and studying and things like that, and sure as the world, I walk into English class one day, and we're having a spelling test, and I had no idea, I mean, I had, I had no clue that we were having a spelling test, and I totally bombed this thing. I think I made like 40 or something like that. And to make matters worse, my teacher, she sends it home with me, and she says, you got to get your parents to sign this. So that was, that was horrible. Well, at that point in the game, I had a bit of a dilemma on my hands because basketball tryouts were coming up in two weeks. And I knew that if I took this thing home to get them to sign it, there's no way they were letting me try out for basketball. So I decided, here's what I'll do. I'll just forge my dad's signature and they'll never know the difference, right? That, that nobody will ever know about it. So I, I, you know, I schemed this plan in my head and I did it and I carried it out and everything and uh, it didn't fool the teacher. Um, <laughs> so she discovered that I had forged my dad's signature and not only then did I have to go home and show them that I made a 40 on the spelling test, I also had to show them that I had forged my dad's signature. So I went home, and I took it to him, and I showed it to him, and sure as the world, my worst fears had come to fruition, and my dad said, son, you can't try out for basketball. You can't do that. Well, 
Those couple of weeks passed, and a few days before basketball tryouts, my dad came to me, and he said, son, I'm going to allow you to try out for the basketball team. And I was just like, whoa, where is this coming from? He said, but I'm not going to allow you to try out for the basketball team because of anything that you've done, because really all you've done is, is deserve punishment for what you've done. But I'm going to let you try out for the basketball team because your older brother came to me, and he pleaded with me to let you try out for the basketball team. In the case of the Israelites here, Moses has gone to the Lord and he's pleaded with the Lord to have mercy on his people. In our case, as, as ones who sit on this side of the cross, Jesus has gone to the Father and he's pleaded on our behalf for the Father to have mercy on us for our sin. He has provided the ultimate intercessor who pleads on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And how do we respond to that? Do we respond to that by worshiping God and God alone? Because that's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's demanding of us. We see very early on in his relationship with his people that God is a merciful God. And we see that specifically in his self-revelation here in verse 6. So where are the places in your life where God has shown you mercy? I know in my case, back to my specific story, I had an issue with lying there, right? I mean, really at the heart of it, I had an issue with lying. But I find myself often, even today, having problems with people who would not tell the truth to me. But God has shown me such great mercy in that area. Am I willing to do the same for them? How often do you turn your idols in worship and once again, God shows you mercy. Maybe some of our idols are pride. You know, I don't really need God. I, I can kind of do this myself. I, I'll just pull up my bootstraps and do this myself. We certainly have a culture that tells us that. Maybe your idol is your money. You know, if I only had, if, it, if I can just get this number in my bank account. This is the number that I'm aiming for right here. And if I get that, everything will be okay. Maybe there are some secret idols that we don't want anyone to know about. And we wonder if God's mercy really can reach that far. Is it great enough to cover those idols? Those deep, dark secrets about myself that nobody else knows. The truth is, God's mercy will cover those. God's mercy will cover those. And He's shown Himself to be ultimately merciful in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So do you worship God by extending mercy to others? Because God has extended mercy to you. What are the idols of your heart that keep you from seeing God's mercy in your own life and your need to worship Him with respect for that mercy? Well, what else do we see about God and His love for His people in our text? We've talked about God being merciful. Next, we're going to talk about God showing us his love through grace. Through grace. Now, first of all, we need to kind of distinguish the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy, as we've said, is when God relents to bring his righteous judgment upon us for having sinned against him. And we see that in the case of the Israelites here. Grace. Grace is God giving us good gifts that are not deserved and can never be earned by our own merits. With that said, if you'll remember what's previously been done for the Israelites by the Lord. 
the gracious things that the Lord has done. One, he's brought plagues upon Egypt so that Pharaoh will let them go and they can worship him. Two, they're let go and they're chased after by Pharaoh's army, but then God parts the Red Sea. And he has it crash down on Pharaoh's army. Again, the Lord is showing grace to his people. They don't deserve this, but he's being gracious to them. He sends them bread from heaven. Sends them water from a rock. And fourth, maybe the, the, the biggest thing is he proclaims them as his covenant people. He proclaims them as his own, his children, in Exodus 19 and 20. And then he tells them, I want to make a way so that I can dwell with you. I want to make a tabernacle so that I can be in your midst, be in your presence. That idea within itself would have been utterly radical in the ancient Near East. Because the idea that God would want to dwell with his people was so foreign. Because people thought of gods as, as these beings who were far off, who needed to be appeased. They were wrathful. And, and, and you needed to appease these gods. But you have God here coming to his people and saying, no, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to come and be with you. You're my children. And again, we see that gracious is a term that God uses to describe himself. In verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Just a quick note on that last part there. Visiting the iniquity on the children and the children's children. We see similar language used in Exodus 20 when God gives the Ten Commandments. And also when Moses gives the people the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy 5. So we see it before this event and we see it after this event. There's similar statements and language. And in each case, the iniquity is visited for those who hate the Lord. It's not as though God carries this punishment out on those who love Him. No, it's specific that those who would reject and hate the Lord are the ones who will receive that punishment. So, and the big message here is look at how much God blesses His people to a thousand generations as opposed to His punishment coming to the third and fourth generation. So don't get caught up on that. The point, of, the point of this passage is that God is merciful and He's gracious. So far merciful and gracious than He is a God who wants to punish. He wants to show mercy and He wants to show grace. But for those who hate Him, He can't show them mercy because really at the end of the day, they don't want His mercy and they don't want His grace. When Carrie and I uh, first moved out to St. Louis to attend seminary, uh, we moved out in the spring of 2009. Um, and uh, we had Lucy in July of 2009. Lucy's our daughter. Uh, she just turned three. And uh, several weeks after Lucy was born, Carrie's dad called and said that her grandfather was not doing well. Uh, he was in the hospital. It didn't look good. Uh, and we really wanted to see him before, before he passed. And we really wanted to give him an opportunity to meet his great-granddaughter. And we were meeting in this small group in our church. 
and we'd just been sharing about each other's uh, each other's lives and, uh, and and each other's stories, you know, where where you came from and and all that. And, and we were at a time when we were taking some prayer requests, and we just shared uh, prayer requests with uh, the people in our small group. Carrie's granddad wasn't doing well, and you know, please pray pray for him and, and pray for the family and everything. And we didn't even express um, that we wanted to go see him because there was a big there was a a big problem with us wanting to go see him is we didn't have the money. We're poor as dirt, uh, you know, in, in, in seminary. But I got a call later that night from one of our small group members, and and he said, "Listen, what would it take for you guys to, to catch a flight and be able to go and visit Carrie's granddad? Just give us a number. Just give me a number." And by seven thirty the next morning, there was a check that was written out to us to cover the entire cost of our trip. Now, why did those people, why did they do that? They did that as an outpouring of the love and the grace that God had shown them. They wanted to give that to us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it one bit. But they wanted to do it. What are the areas in your life where you've been shown a great deal of grace, but you're not willing to do that for others? It's good, God, that you've shown me grace there that you've given me good gifts here, but I don't really want to share that with other people. I'm not, I'm not really going to do that. How often do we fail to worship God by not being gracious towards others? How often do we take the time to do the dishes instead of letting them pile up so that our roommate or our spouse can do the dishes? Parents, do you show your children grace? Do you give them good gifts out of your love for them? Or do you, are your children always somehow having to earn the gifts that they receive? How are you treating your children? Are you treating your children the way that God treats us, His children? We see that God is so gracious towards us, and yet we oftentimes have the same problem as the Israelites, don't we? We don't recognize that grace and show it to others. God was calling the Israelites to have the same value of graciousness that he had and to spread that to the nations. God was so gracious that he sent his son, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to become sin so that we may be the righteousness of God. How gracious is that, that God would give us his righteousness? Totally undeserved. And he'd call us his children just as he did for the Israelites. Well, we've seen that God is a merciful God. We've seen that he is a gracious God. But there's one more part that I want to look at today, and it's in verse 10. Another way that God shows his love for his people is that he uses insignificant people for significant purposes. Let's read back through uh, verse 10 there. It says, And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. In the late 90s, there was a, a movie that came out called Simon Birch. You ever seen Simon Birch? Two people. All right, great. So Simon Birch is a movie about this, uh, about this little guy and, um, and his friend Joe. And Simon thinks of himself 
as, as a very significant person. Like he, he thinks that he has this destiny, that he is going to do great things. The problem is, is that everybody around him, with the exception of his buddy Joe and Joe's mom, don't think that. They think that he is just this insignificant person who's never really going to amount to anything. And he's really nothing more than just a nuisance. He goes to church and he asks questions about God and who God is. And he's ignored. Real, genuine questions. He's seen as just this insignificant person who's never really going to amount to anything. And really, he's just annoying. But then there's this scene late in the movie where... Uh, the, the church that they're going to is going on a field trip with several young boys in, in the church. And they get on this church bus, and the weather's really bad. It's really inclement, and it's snowing. There's ice on the road and, and everything. And they, they get on this bus, and, and they're going to wherever it is they're going. And the next thing you see in the scene is that the bus driver's driving. He's driving, and he hears something in the back, and he kind of takes his eyes off the road. And the next thing you know, they're sort of barreling down this hill. They're, they're, they're going through a forest, uh, knocking down trees, all kinds of stuff. And then they just sort of crash into this, this running stream that's got freezing cold water in it. And there they are in this bus, all these little children, this bus driver, and they're stuck in this stream. And the bus driver, who's supposed to be you know, the, the guy in charge taking care of these children and everything, he bolts. He gets out. He swims to the shore and doesn't think twice about those kids in there. And it's at that moment that Simon realizes what his destiny is. He realizes why this moment is significant. And he stands up and he says, calm down. And all the kids kind of look to him. And then he begins to tell them how he's going to get each one of them out. And they're going to get them to safety and they're going to get them to the shore. And he starts, he starts busting each one out. And Joe's carrying them to the shore. Simon's making sure that they're getting out of the bus and everything. And Simon starts, starts looking around as, as, the, as the kids are all getting out there. And he see them, sees them going to shore. And he realizes that there's, there, there's one person that hasn't made it out yet. And so he goes looking around the bus and everything. And the water's just coming up and coming up and coming up. And he sees this little fella. And he's sitting down and he's got his foot stuck. And Simon goes under the water. He pries his foot loose, and he gets him loose, and he gets him out, and Joe gets him and gets him back to the shore. And then we see the bus kind of going under the water. Joe comes back out, and he's able to get Simon out of the water, but the damage is done. And a few days later in the hospital, Simon passes away. But we see a picture in this of seemingly just this insignificant person doing such a significant thing and saving the lives of all those children. Let's take a, a broader look back at Scripture here for a second, at the promise that, that God has made to the Israelites in verse 10 that we just read. He promises that he'll do mighty acts as has never been seen before through these Israelites. Well, let's take a look back at Moses. All right, Moses is this, is this insignificant Jewish baby who ends up in a stream and then gets picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and his life is saved when he's supposed to be killed. And he grows up in Pharaoh's house. And then he ends up running away from Pharaoh's house because he's taken the life of another man and he becomes a farmer way out yonder way. And God chooses to use Moses to confront the Pharaoh whose house he grew up in 
and lead his people out of Egypt. Take a bigger step back. Genesis 12. God calls this seemingly insignificant person Abraham and makes a covenant with him. And he says that through you, I'm going to bless you so that you will bless the nations. And then, as we look forward from Exodus 34, God has a plan for the nation of Israel to become a world power for a time under the reign of King David. A seemingly insignificant little nation. And he uses an insignificant teenager named Mary to be the bearer of the promised Messiah first mentioned way back in Genesis 3.15. And ultimately, God uses this insignificant nation of Israel to bring redemption to his people and to all of his creation through his son, Jesus Christ. If you share today and you think of yourself as just a blip on the radar, you think of yourself as an insignificant person? You see, the truth of what Scripture tells us is that none of us is insignificant. As a matter of fact, each one of us is so significant in the eyes of God that He would send His only Son to die for us so that we may receive His mercy and His grace. God looks at each one of us as His image bearers, and that is no insignificant thing. You are a significant person in the eyes of God. Maybe that's something that you haven't heard an awful lot. Maybe you don't feel like that. But the Word of God tells us that you really and truly are. Now, how, how often do we feel the sway of the Holy Spirit to give a word of encouragement to somebody who looks like maybe they're just having a bad day? And we think to ourselves, man, my words, they really don't matter. They really don't make a difference. Folks, we must not allow the doubts that Satan places into our minds to belittle the work that God may choose to do and that God promises to do through his children. You never know how God might use a word of encouragement to spur someone on to realizing their helplessness and their sin and their need for Jesus. Are we afraid that God might actually use little insignificant us to do a mighty work? Do we as the people of God not worship God maybe through taking care of the poor because it's so big, how in the world could we ever really make a dent in that? Most importantly, do we refuse to worship God in proclaiming Christ because deep down, deep down we believe that that news is not really that significant. Surely it can't really actually change lives. Are you here and you recognize your need for a merciful and gracious God? Have you considered that Christ is the ultimate act of mercy and grace toward a humanity that desperately needs a loving, merciful, and gracious God? What's significant to you in your life? What does significance mean for this community of believers, Grace Presbyterian Church? It's interesting, the more I talk to people, the more I think that the answer to both of these questions is, is very similar. I think that the truth is, we all think that one of the most significant things in this life for an individual is true, genuine, real, authentic community with one another. We innately desire to be a community 
to be in a community with other people, and we want for that community to be real. Because most of our lives maybe are a facade. Maybe you have to put on this face at work of someone who you really aren't. We feel like we have to be someone that we really aren't. We have a culture that tells us that, oh, I've got to be like this, or I've got to be like that. The reason we feel this way is because all of our experience tells us that we can't really be vulnerable with one another. We can't be vulnerable about, vulnerable about who we are because we'll be judged harshly for the truth about ourselves. We're scared. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, I, I know that there have been times where I've been vulnerable with people and I've received nothing but harsh condemnation in return. Are we a community of people who would be characterized by mercy and grace and love that we show one another and that we show this community around us? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose from the dead so that we might be saved, but saved into what? Saved into a community of people who really care and love for one another. A community of people that understand that we're all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. And a community where we should be able to be vulnerable about who we are and what we're going through. And receive genuine compassion in response to those things. That doesn't mean that the church is a community where truth is compromised. But a place where real love takes place. Where we can be honest with one another about our struggles and our sin, and we can receive love and challenge at the same time. That is the community that we're meant to be. And while we may struggle to be that community and may not always get things right, that's going to happen. We're still sinners. We seek to be a people of repentance, mercy, and grace, and love. Through the genuine community, so that the world will truly be changed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the vision of this church, is that we would long and seek and desire to be that in our communities and in around the world. Do you long to be a part of something that will actually change the world? The truth is, God is merciful and gracious, and He will use what seems to be the most insignificant thing or person to do the most significant things. And he's calling us to submit to him in worship and give ourselves over to his love, over to his mercy, and over to his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that you are gracious, you're slow to anger, and you abound in love for us. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into a community. Lord, you have not left us out there on our own. But you've called us to be with one another. Father, I pray that you would convict us to want and desire to really and truly be a part of a community. Lord, that you would give us compassion and mercy and grace toward one another and grace toward anybody that we may meet in our walk of life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.